As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective Podcast from The Athletic. Spring is in the air. Spring training is fully afoot. I'm Ted Berg and I am joined on the line by The Athletic's Mets beat writer, Tim Britton. Tim, we have the same initials. Do you also own a bunch of Tampa Bay Rays stuff? You know, I did point out at one point last year, I think it was Dave Lennon from Newsday. I'm going to call Dave Lennon from Newsday out, talking about how, how much he liked the, the Rays uniforms. And I thought, as someone who is very invested in how the letters T and B look on a hat, that the Rays could do better. And they, in fact, have done better in their past. See, I, I, well, I have a lot to say about that topic, but we'll get to uniforms a little bit in a while. And I want to get to the, the news of the day first. Uh, and that is that Pete Alonzo, the Mets first baseman, uh, 2019 Rookie of the Year, I think, uh, you know, a franchise cornerstone to, to be unceremoniously departed from social media what happened well you i think you used passive voice there i don't think he was dumped by social media um, no he i said he departed he departed okay. he, he departed Sorry. From. yeah but i think that was his active choice uh unlike some some others uh in the news in 2021 yeah. um so yeah i mean I, we have <laughs> pete alonso has been kicked off at twitter for spreading misinformation um about yeah about whether or not the Mets should go uh we have uh we have not talked to Pete yet so we don't know exactly why I can imagine it being just a basic uh desire to focus on the field as players off you know a lot of players uh even if they are still on social media or still have active accounts don't really pay attention to them during the season uh quite the same way uh you know because like it's you're why busy. would you um it's it's yeah. you're not it's not going to be more praise than criticism even if you are a player uh who's had the successful track record that pete alonzo has had there's still 29 other teams that dislike you and some significant portion of the fan of, of every fan base hates every player on that team to some extent um there's always someone who's a mets fan who dislikes someone on the mets well, uh, yeah, so it's funny you mentioned that because while while looking for this this pete alonzo news uh, or, or for more on it on Twitter, I discovered that there is apparently, and I don't want to give too much time to this because 
I, it's there's a, like you said, there's always just going to be this fringe element with every player who doesn't like that guy. But I, I was a little bit surprised to see that there are some at least fairly credible voices expressing some backlash to to Pete Alonso. Um, some because he's too vulgar on Twitter, which like, come on. Um, but uh, the, then also. Uh, people saying he's not that good and he's a bench player and, and pointing to his 2020 season, which was disappointing uh, as evidence that, you know, he's not the player he was the year before. And again, I, it's just it seems so silly to me because everybody knows it's 57 games um, that he played and that it just it can't it can't mean that much. And and he was still twenty percent better than the league average when he comes to to OPS with his right. OPS plus there. Uh, yeah, it's I think it's it's kind of the inevitable backlash to anything or anyone being popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, in Alonso's context, you have another player who predominantly plays his position on the team who is very good in Dominic Smith. So mm-hmm. I think there is an element of the fan base that wants to uh, have a Smith versus Alonzo debate, especially at a time when there is no designated hitter. The good news is the Mets as a front office, as an organization, do not have to have that debate. This isn't like Ryan Howard coming up when the Phillies had Jim Tomei and you've got to choose between the two on a daily basis and you've got to trade one long term. Uh, the Mets can probably get by with Smith playing in left field uh, in 2021. Uh, and then I think the expectation from most everyone in baseball is that we have a designated hitter next year uh, and that you can go back to playing them uh, both the same time with Smith playing first most of the time, Alonzo playing at the other time, uh, and have a better defensive outfield in that case. So I, I think, you know, it's basically whenever someone comes on the scene as popular and a bit brash as, as Alonzo could be at times, although, you know, not extremely not Van Wagen and come get us brash. Yeah. <laughs> brash in an extremely fun team friendly way. Like he, uh, there's, yeah, I, I would have, it's hard to imagine having really like too much. I don't know. I just, uh, maybe I'm, I'm just past like fighting about that stuff, but it's just like, this guy's having fun playing baseball. Like who cares? Just enjoy it. Right. And, and there's so few ways, you know, we talk all the time about how sports can, as, as you get older uh, and, and more knowledgeable about them, sometimes lose some of the fun aspects of them. Uh, and Pete Alonso is very fun, uh, like in a lot of different ways uh, as a player and as a personality. Uh, and you would hope that uh, he would have a hundred percent approval rating uh, by the Mets fan base. But, you know, I don't know that, uh, you know, I'm sure wonder- in... I'm sure in 1969 Twitter, there was someone who didn't like the way Tom Seaver finished the season. You know, Seaver blew it in game one of the division series of the LCS. You know, we can't trust him in big spots or something like that. I'm trying to think of like what what player in Mets history might have 100 percent approval of Mets Twitter. And it's either like Joe McEwing or it's someone that's like where it's like. Nolan Ryan as a Met because you know like everyone on like 1980 Mets Twitter was all claiming they knew Nolan Ryan would be this good and the Mets <laughs> should have never traded him away it's not Jordani Valdespin he seems like he should have 100% yeah. approval rating uh, he has 100% approval rating from me uh, but me alone it seems like at least based on some <laughs> conversations I've had with people in the organization um, but that's, he's not playing for the Mets anymore uh, someone who is now playing for the Mets and the subject of really an excellent profile Tim and I, I really enjoyed reading uh, from you at The Athletic 
tell me what you've learned. And and now he's arrived at camp, so now we've heard from a little bit. What do we know about Francisco Lindor that we didn't know last week? Uh, his hair is blue. Uh, that is that is the most important thing. And, and apparently, you know, he decided he gets a little tired of the, of the regular color. So he decided to go with blue because he said as it would fade, it would go to like a cool silverish gray kind of thing over time. Uh, but it looks cool. good. Looks good now with the especially with the blue spring training uh, jerseys that the guys wear. You know, I, I talked to some people who who knew Lindor back kind of before he was, uh, you know, an all star shortstop in the major leagues. Uh, his high school coach, uh, who, who's actually grew up a Mets fan on Long Island, uh, the guys from the the Cleveland organization who scouted him and and signed him. Uh, and you know, when you when you talk to those people, you get a sense like the first time you see Francisco Lindor play. Uh, you remember that day, uh, you know, his high school coach, Tim Layden said, you know, he, he was new as a high school coach that year in Lindor's senior year. And, and he knew that there was a guy on the team that was supposed to be like a first round major league draft pick. Uh, and the first time he saw Lindor, he goes, oh, yeah, that that's that's totally legit. One hundred percent. I understand. Yeah. It took, and he's like, it took, you know, five minutes. It was like three ground balls hit to him. And you knew that that he had the goods. Um, and for some of the scouts, it was. You know, you're you're there to watch someone else, and then you just see this kid playing shortstop. Uh, as a sophomore, it was for Lindor as like a you know a 15 year old, and he really stood out. Um, I thought one of the interesting things was just the way uh, they talked up his maturity. Uh, like he he was a younger high school senior than than mm-hmm. most people. He was 17 as a high school senior. Uh, that that was younger than I was, and and you know you think of the Mets with Brett Beatty was a 19 year old high school senior, their first round pick a couple of years ago. So. Uh, to handle the amount of pressure he had on him. Like, you know, every game you play, there's 100 scouts in attendance. There's guys watching your batting practice. There's guys showing up to your practices. Every move you make uh, is chronicled. Like, you know, when, when someone asked Jed Hoyer, the Cubs GM, about vetting executives in the wake of things that happened with the Mets uh, earlier this offseason, he said we should vet them like we vet first-round picks, which tells you how closely they look at first-round picks, look closer mm-hmm. than they do at managers or general managers that they're going to hire. That's how that's how close the scrutiny is, and that Lindor was still every day there with a smile, never seemed like he had a bad day the entire time, um, and you know was was a guy who was just kind of um, an understood leader on his roster. Uh, in high school, you know, a guy who showed up every day uh, in practice, did the same thing, was the hardest worker on the team, even though he was already the best player. And just the way that sets a tone and some Mets have already talked about Michael Conforto talking uh, on Tuesday afternoon said you can you get the sense of, of the way he is a, uh, a quiet leader right away uh, in just, you know, the, the day and a half he's been in camp so far. I love and I want to get back to Lindor, but. I love athlete origin stories so much. I don't know if you've had the opportunity ever to like see a future pro athlete that sort of everybody knows is a future pro athlete play in, in like high school or I, I had a, I had an experience in peewee football against a kid who wound up on an NFL taxi squad. And like, I knew it in peewee football. I was like, that guy's going to the NFL. That guy's way too good. Um, and it's funny because it like sort of immediately crushes your own dreams when you're in fifth grade. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to play in the NFL. That guy's going to play in the NFL. Um, but one of the best I ever heard was from, from Mike Trout's baseball, uh, high school baseball coach, uh, who said that Trout, I guess Trout had been committed to, I think he was committed to East Carolina. And the East Carolina coach came to visit him and, and came to watch a game. And, Trout's high school coaches, so Trout in the game 
I guess the hit a long fly ball, the center fielder misplayed it and Trout ran it out for an inside the park home, home run. And Trout's high school coach turns around and sees the East Carolina coach leaving. And he's like, where are you going? And he's like, this kid's not coming to me. That's the <laughs> best baseball player I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and, and sure enough, you know, Trout was then a, a first round draft pick. And, and within, by the time I think he would have been a sophomore at ECU, uh, the, the best player in baseball. Um, but Lindor, uh, an interesting little uh, foreshadowing in your article is that Lindor expressed or his coach expressed that, that he didn't need coaching for knowing where to stand in the infield. And when Lindor arrived at Mets camp and, and, and had a, a sort of long and, and interesting and, and uh, possibly more nuanced than we're used to conversation about analytics in baseball, he expressed basically the same thing in terms of infield shifting. Yeah. You know, it's, you can understand kind of the the way he feels about it because there, he's a guy who's always known where to play, <laughs> like where to put himself, position himself defensively. Uh, his, his high school coach said, you know, it's like the first time we're playing every team. He's, you know, this, by the time the, the guy's up a second time, he knew where to where to stand um, and, he, and where to position everyone else on the field around him. Uh, and, and Lindor basically said, you know, if I'm going to, if the ball's going to get by me, and I'm not, and I, I've decided where to play. That's fine with me. I'll roll with that. But if I'm in a shift and I don't get a, get to a ball because I was in the shift, that just eat, that eats me up inside. Uh, and you can understand a, a player who is so used to relying on his instincts feeling that way. And I think a lot of players feel that way. You know, you and and you hear that from pitchers a lot too. Especially like if if there is a ground ball to a place where the second baseman might traditionally be standing or the third baseman might traditionally be standing and he's not there because it's shifted. You, it feels like you hear the complaints more often than you hear the like, oh, phew, that obvious line drive single up the middle turned into a double play because we were shifted. Yeah, you, you don't credit the shift as much as you uh, detract from it when it, uh, when it hurts you as a defense, when you, know, you give up that weak ground ball that's, that sleep gets through the left side because your shortstop is behind the second base bag. Um, I, I think, you know, Lindor is not the only player to take a shot at analytics. Uh, you know, Michael Conforto today or Tuesday was talking about uh, the way they've come uh, to, to dominate the game a little bit. And I, I heard Garrett Cole talked about some things over mm-hmm. in Yankees camp. Uh, and I, I think you've got players who are, uh, they're a little bit, they're, they're upset about the way the sport is being run in general. Uh, and then you know, they, they don't like the way analytics are, are being used, I think predominantly probably, and how they're being used to decide who gets what, who gets paid what uh, in free agency and how good players uh, are not getting paid what they think they're worth. And not a lot of teams are going after good players because they don't feel like even a good addition is worthwhile with where they are on the competitive win curve, basically. Uh, and that, that trickles down to how they feel about that application within games, you know, with uh, the, the classic example of Blake Snell being taken out uh, in the World Series last year. Uh, you know, players, you, you grow up playing the game a certain way and you understand the reasoning behind a lot of the things going into it. You know, Lindor knows about the percentages of where guys hit the ball, but he's also really confident in, in his own reads of how a player's swing works with a certain pitcher. And he, he thinks he, his judgments on kind of a granular instinctual level, uh, how this guy performs against this specific kind of pitcher will be better than the broader view of of analytics uh and you understand a player wanting to keep his own approach that way yeah and there's so much in there and i and i think 
I suspect at least, because Lindor and Cole are both union representatives, uh, that it is uh, there is some sort of gamesmanship maybe going on in, in advance of the presumably contentious collective bargaining that we know is to come, because it sounds like there's going to be some there's going to be some and there should be some discussion about the game itself and its marketability and its popularity with with the youth of America. And yes, like speeding the game along and having more action are, are clearly things they need. And and I don't know, I, I hope this isn't the case, but I, I almost feel like I wonder if players are, are sort of trying to set this the to plant the seed that you know, it's the infield shift that's slowing things down more than, to me, what seems obvious, which is the need for a pitch clock. Because I, I, I think if you actually dive into it, you know, it's not pitching changes and it's not mound visits and it's not infield shifts. It's just um, in this, and I believe Craig Council uh, used the term a few years ago, and I've, I've thought about it ever since he called it the, the execution of, of pitches era. Um, and I think what he's sort of referring to is the notion that starting pitchers nowadays, it's almost like, uh, you're running, you know, 90 to 100 wind sprints instead of a marathon. And, uh, you know, and so each pitch comes with you know, 25 seconds of, of quiet contemplation beforehand. And, and to me, that is like, so obviously what's causing the game to take so long and so easily, uh, remedied by just putting in a pitch clock and and i understand why players don't want that but um i almost worry that that's what the all this like sudden talk about uh too many analytics in the game is is just sort of like this okay this is something we're gonna fight for so we don't have to concede to a pitch clock yeah i like i think it's it's probably less with an an on-field goal in mind as much as it is just to get teams to value players differently like conforto (laughs) was saying uh you know the, the primary issue he feels, and he, he's the, he's been the Mets union rep for a while, uh, Cole and Lindor are guys on like the executive subcommittee for the, the Players Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all these guys have vested interests and, and kind of know what's going on with the union. Uh, Conforto said the primary issue is like teams being competitive. We want 30 teams trying to win. And it's really, you know, you look at the competitive landscape of the sport, and that's very clearly not the case. And it's not the case in a much more explicit fashion than it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know when, when we were growing up, like, there were years you knew going in the Mets were not going to make the playoffs. They were not as good uh, as, like, the 1995 or 96 or uh, whatever year you want to say in that era, Atlanta Braves. Like, they were not going to win the division, but you never got the sense that they were explicitly trying not to win the division and trying to win as few games as possible. Uh, you ha- you've had really in the last decade uh that change with how teams approach things uh and teams deciding that it doesn't really they don't need to try very hard to win you know this goes back to uh everyone's villain for the last couple days the the resigned mariners Mm -hmm. president kevin mather uh talking about you know not wanting to play not going to bring up jared kelenic at all in 2020 regardless of what happened with that team uh, and Seattle missed the playoffs by two games, uh, and they played some pretty terrible corner outfielders. And there wasn't an, an, an ounce of introspection about the idea that Jared Kelenic might have helped them end the longest postseason drought in the sport in North American sports, I believe, at this point. Mm-hmm. If they had decided to swallow their, <laughs> to to swallow the financial implications and play their best prospect 
a little bit in 2020. Uh, so, and what that's... is and what is the guy for if not winning you a champ? Right? It's so it's so. I mean, in that case, it seems so uh, like self defeating. You know, like you're trying. Your point is to win, and this guy's going to help you win. Like, yeah, start the clock. Let's start the clock. Uh, whatever. Yeah, like I mean, I, I th- you know, it was. I think it was Patrick Dubuque at, at, at Baseball Perspectives. I've read a couple different stories about this, so I, I hope I've got it right. Who pointed out that like Kellenek is more valuable to the Mariners right now as a prospect, as an idea, because of how he can be sold to the fan base, than he might be three years from now as a superstar player that you have to pay a little bit more, you know, that, that being able to pitch him as the future means more to a team that is, is not really trying its hardest to win at the moment than it might be uh, when he's your present. And that's a really, that's a bad place for an organization to be in and for a sport to be in when several organizations are doing that. Yeah. And I mean, we could, we could talk for hours, I'm sure about the issues to come in the new collective bargaining agreement and the uh, various way it seems like, you know, teams are sort of, squeezing out player salaries and 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 plenty of teams seem to be uh disproportionately benefiting from revenue sharing the way the competitive balance tax the luxury tax which was uh, intended for that uh to to create an atmosphere where 30 teams can compete has instead become like quite the opposite and and uh, a soft salary cap which is which is costing the players as well. They, I think the last few CBAs have not worked out uh, in the long run for the players and uh, for their sake, hopefully it, that turns around. But that's a, that's a subject for, for much later. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Um, in the news, um, in on the athletic and a big one and one I teased earlier. Um, and I don't believe we brought up that, that Steve Cohen has returned to Twitter, but he was a big, uh, force, the driving force, certainly behind this story. Rustin Dodd wrote about the Mets black jerseys of the late 1990s and the possibility that they're coming back. Where are you on this? Uh, I'm on the record as uh, not liking them aesthetically overall, as as I think uh, the discerning Mets fan points out in most of these instances. The black jerseys themselves are okay. Uh, it's the way they ruined every other Mets jersey, like that they no longer wore the blue hats very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was black drop shadow on everything. Uh, you know that the, the Mets jerseys were not as good as they they could be, or as good as they currently are uh, now because of the Blacks' intrusion into every aspect of their identity. 
Um, the black jerseys themselves, I'd be fine with returning on a limited basis. Uh, you know, you see some teams do Friday night home games in a certain alternate uh, or, or Saturday night games in an alternate. Uh, like, I'd be okay with that. I would probably want them to not do it every time on a Friday night. That 13 times is too many for the black jerseys. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to wear it on a series here or there against, you know, I, I thought going into the 2020 season, which was the 20th anniversary of the 2000 team, uh, I thought it would make sense to maybe wear the black jerseys against like the Giants or the Cardinals, you know, the teams you beat in that postseason. Uh, something like that. I, I don't want to see them back uh, where they're wearing a, a black jersey at home or on the road like 70 times a season the way it, it was for a little while there. You just reminded me that the the I was at a playoff game that year against the Giants, and I sat my uncle had just unbelievable seats at Chase Stadium. Uh, and I got, I scored my uncle's seat somehow, and they were right next to the comp seats for the San Francisco Giants. And so uh, it was all the San Francisco Giants' wives were, were and and possibly, well, you know, whatever. Uh, they were all sitting right next to us. And I just remember that they kept singing Who Let the Dogs Out, um, as which is just like the most 2000 thing, right? Like that, it was just that, that, like that, that is the weird time capsule moment in my head is that they would be like, that one of them would stand up. I would, like, I think that that must have been like, maybe they didn't realize that every stadium in the country was playing that song and they thought, oh, this is something we do in San Francisco. Like, this is a rallying cry for our team because, like, one would stand up and yell who let the dogs out and then everyone else like all of the giants cheering section that was right that was sort of buried there um would all do the oof, 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 oof. um it was very silly i have no point to make on that um i just was, it, was, just, the, was that the was that the agbayani game or the bobby jones game because both are very memorable uh it was not it was not the bobby jones game i assume i don't actually remember the game i only remember the the <laughs> Um, you know, I've got. I was at. I was at a, a handful of playoff games in those years, um, and one other in that in those seats. And the other one I sat in those seats was the the Robin Ventura Grand Slam single. Um, so that is the far more memorable <laughs> Shea Stadium playoffs uh, turn of the millennium uh, baseball memory for me, especially because I I was. Uh, I had class the next day in DC and I was supposed to, it was like, a, I think it was like an afternoon game and I was hoping Sunday, to catch, yeah. I was hoping to catch the last Delta shuttle. It used to be, again, this is pre nine 11. So you could just like go to the airport and get on a plane. Um, and so I was helping, hoping to ca catch the last shuttle to DC. And I remember like desperately convincing my parents that I, I didn't, I could go the next morning because I needed to stay for the game. Um, and that obviously turned out to be a, a fine decision on my part. Um, I think that I, I'm fine with the black jerseys. I think that what I'm about to say is going to lose me a ton of cred with Mets fans, and I'm good with it. I am so against the hegemony of blue in major league uniforms that if the Mets came out tomorrow and were like, yeah, we're, you know what, like, Never mind blue and orange. We're going maroon and silver tomorrow. I would be like the one Mets fan who was psyched about it, and I would go out and buy the new stuff. Just and it's not and like obviously like as you have and as I have from growing up a Mets fan. There's like all these personal and emotional ties to the logo and the uniform and all these things, and I would like so happily throw all of that out 
just to have one baseball team wear a better color scheme, a more interesting one than just blue and orange or blue and red, which is every team. Um, I think the reason the Padres got good in 2019, in 2020 was not Fernando Tatis Jr. I think it was that they went back to the brown uniforms. Um, and so, uh, you know, like I'm fine, but whatever, the black, whatever. Um, I would be good. I, I would be good with an overhaul. Like, I, you know, I, I prefer, I prefer the traditional blue and orange. I think I especially, I think probably, it's a little bit like Saturday Night Live where like the one that's the best is always the one that was there when you were 13. Um, and so like, yeah, like the best uniforms to me are the ones from the early 90s, like pre the white era before. Because remember, the black replaced. They spent one year wearing the white hats on Sunday. White, yeah. And, um, and those were ridiculous looking. Um, and so I love them at the time, though. I loved them at the time. I hate them uh, in retrospect. I, loved them at the time. The trend I loved at the time which the Mets did not get into was that for a little while, a, a handful of teams started wearing road gray caps and like the Royals and the pirates, I believe both mm. went to road grays. And I remember really loving those. I had a, I had, I think I actually had both a gray Royals and a gray pirates hat when I was like in middle school. Uh, I would be cool with that. Like I would be the Mets bringing in like a gray hat with the, with the Mets logo, logo like a gray I would like to see gray as a primary color for some team. I think that would be bold, you know, like make it your hat, a gray hat with a white logo. Um, I don't know. I got, I got ideas. If anyone has, I don't have, I can't I have no design skills, but if anyone has one wants to call me up, I can talk to you about color schemes. I think would be cool in major league baseball. Um, we have a question from a reader and I want to end with that. Um, but I didn't, Cue it up in my email before I teased it to you. And so now I have to do that. And this is the sound of me stalling. Um, here we go. It comes from Aaron Pultman. And Aaron wants to know, and you are better suited than me to answer this question. He says, um, what does the future look like for Ronnie Mauricio with Lindor on the team? Does he go into spring training playing shortstop? Do the Mets see him as the future at third base? Would they use the spring to see him there? I mean, I think Mauricio is not a guy who's going to impact the 2021 big league roster. So you probably leave him at shortstop regardless. Um, if, uh, you know, if you're thinking long term, Mauricio is a guy who might be up at some point in 2022, but probably not to start the year. Like he's probably you're thinking of someone who might come up at some point later next summer and then more of a regular player in 2023. So with that in mind, you know, if you extend Lindor, in spring training, you can probably leave Mauricio at short for this season and then look at him more as a third baseman starting next year. Uh, I mean, he's a guy who's, I think he's six foot three. Uh, so he's, he's pretty tall to, yeah, play he's listed to at, begin with. Listed at six three one sixty six, I saw, which means like, <laughs> who knows where it goes from there, right? Like he's so young. Yeah. And I, I think there's been some thought that uh, he'd end up at third anyway. Like if he sticks at short, it's probably as an average to below average defender at short. And the good news is that, uh, you know, the bat should be able to play at third base. Like he should be able to hit uh, for enough average, enough power, enough production to be a, a corner infielder at third for you, uh, you know, in a way that like you weren't sure about with Ahmed Rosario. Uh, at least not once he got to the majors. So I, I think that's probably the the plan. I think you know a lot of um, a lot of fans think about these things more in advance than they need to. Like covering the Red Sox, 
uh, Mookie Betts came up as a second baseman. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, once they, they signed Dustin Pedroia to an eight-year contract extension in 2013, it was like, well, they can trade Mookie Betts now and get the best they can get for Mookie Betts. Uh, and he clearly uh, has had the athleticism to play uh, the outfield and play it as, you know, arguably the best outfielder in baseball uh, especially in a corner outfield spot and, and Betts could play center for you know the only reason he didn't play center is the Red Sox had Jackie Bradley that's where he moved to British initially so you know I, I think Mauricio is a guy there are other options for him to play uh you're you know a, a fan might say well then you've got Vientos and Beatty at third what do you do with them these things work themselves out yeah. over time you know, you know what we call those things we call those good problems if you have too <laughs> many good players at a position that's fine Right. Like with Mauricio, I think you keep him at shortstop for as long as he can play shortstop. And if it turns out he's a he's a big league shortstop and he's in triple A, then you've got a good problem. And you can because shortstop is the hardest position on the field. You could presumably move him basically anywhere else except pitcher or catcher and have him succeed there. Um, And if you feel that his value is all wrapped up in his being a great defensive shortstop, then you can perhaps look to trade him at the time and, and get back, you know, whatever you would get for a, a potentially elite prospect in, in a couple of years. So, yeah, I would say it's it's an interesting thought because, you know, obviously you want Lindor to be the long-term solution here and they do happen to have a, a pretty promising shortstop prospect. I don't think it's like the type of thing that needs to be a front burner issue for the Mets anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, like catcher and first base are the only positions where this is legitimately a problem long term. Uh, and and now with a designated hitter coming in, even those spots are not uh, as big a problem as they once were. That sounds all good. Um, thank you to Aaron for sending us a question. If you would like to ask us a question, you can email me at asktedberg at gmail.com. I promise I will relay the questions to Tim. Uh, you could get at either of us on Twitter. I am at OG Ted Berg. Tim is at Tim Britton. That's right, right? There's no, yeah. there's nothing else in there. Um, and you can rate us and review us on iTunes or wherever you might rate and review podcasts, especially if you're polite. Um, and uh, Tim, enjoy uh, the next few days of of workouts we will hear about baseball players practicing oh it's it's everyone's favorite time of year it's pitcher fielding practice time ted i love it i miss it it would be pretty good to be in florida watching pitchers like laugh at each other as they botch bunts on the first day (laughs) adios yeah peace out